Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. I'm so excited for today's interview because I have recently gotten way more interested in psychedelics as they pertain to our psychological and spiritual well-being. Obviously, it's a really huge emerging field right now. So many, uh, so many people are talking about it. Certainly so many clinicians in my field of work are curious about it. I'm actually taking a course right now on psychoanalysis and psychedelics. So I'm excited to have this conversation today with Tina, Kat, Courtney. Uh, Kat is known as the afterlife coach and is traditionally trained. Okay, bear with me, everybody is a traditionally trained ayahuascara guachamara carrying the shibo conobo quechua lamista and chavin plant medicine lineages that was a mouthful <laughs> she works as a ceremony guide and psychedelic integration coach and is a certified death doula cat is an enthusiastic advocate for reverence and safe plant medicine experiences and is a passionate messenger of how to co-create magic without trauma in psychedelic spaces. She is the co-founder of Plant Medicine People, a plant medicine concierge company, and the author of Plant Medicine Mystery School. If you would like to work with Kat or join her in sacred ceremony, you can find out more about her at afterlifecoach.com and plantmedicinepeople.com. Welcome, Kat. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Robin. This is like a thrill to be here. Thank you so much for everybody who has supported the podcast. So there's so many ways you can support the podcast and the work that I'm doing. One, you can spread the word about the podcast. So share the podcast with someone you know, repost my anything on social media. If you are a therapist listening to the podcast and you have a client who you think would benefit, share it with them. This podcast has grown completely organically. It is all because of you all sharing the podcast. And we are coming up on a million downloads, which is amazing. Other ways that you can support the podcast is through Patreon. So if you would like to become a patron, you can go to Patreon, put in Dr. Amy Robbins. You can find different tiers to support the podcast at the five, 10 or $20 level or any other denomination. And my $20 supporters do get once quarterly Zoom calls with me. They've been fabulous. If you benefit from the podcast, if your life has shifted or changed as a result of the podcast, please help me continue to help you have on these great guests. Also follow me on Instagram, Dr. Amy Robbins. I love hearing from my listeners, trying to do my best to be quick to respond. And lastly, rate, review, and subscribe. I also love reading the reviews, so you can rate the podcast, but you can also review the podcast. Thank you all for all of your support, for all of your love, for all of your helping to collectively raise the consciousness of this planet. I am so incredibly grateful. I'm so excited. We started talking a few minutes before we started recording. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I had conversations a while back about ayahuasca and plant medicines that were being researched uh, at Johns Hopkins. And I'm really excited to talk with you because I read your book and if, you, if anybody wants sort of a breakdown, I mean, you come through the lens of ayahuasca, but really a breakdown of the consciousness of these plants. You do such a beautiful job of that. I'm going to, I got the book as a digital, I'm going to get a hardcover so I can keep it with me because I just am so curious about this emerging field. And I would love to know from you, first of all, how you sort of got into this. Let, let's start there. Let's start there. I got into it for the same reason most people do just needing my own healing. Um, this was almost 20 years ago. Uh, I was dating this amazing man at the time that said, you want to go to the jungle and try ayahuasca? And I didn't know what that is, but it sounded fun. You know, it was not something, I even tried to research it online. There was very little information. This was way before the big renaissance. And, but I knew I needed some healing and it seemed to be about that. So I went and had my first um, cycle, which is three ceremonies of ayahuasca in the jungle. And it absolutely rocked my world and changed my life. Now, it did not fix me because that's not what these medicines are about. But what it did is made me aware 
that there was hope for me. Dealing with, at the time, bulimia, uh, functional alcoholism. I had been diagnosed bipolar in my early 20s, just kind of lost and unstable and self-medicating, but in a destructive way. And when I found ayahuasca, it just awoken this, like, this process in me of, oh, I know how to heal. It's innate in all of us to know how to heal. I just got to show up and start doing the work. And it just so happens ayahuasca was like my partner in that. Um, and then fast, fast forward a couple of years, and I got this kind of crazy idea of can a white girl from Montana facilitate ayahuasca ceremonies? Could I actually train to work with her? And that started that whole journey of apprenticing and learning to sit behind the altar. Uh, in addition to being a participant. So that's how it all started. Well, and you have a beautiful story because I think what I love about how you're speaking about this is really holding these plant medicines with the reverence that they deserve. And I, I worry certainly as a practitioner of, as a facilitator of healing, you talk about this in, in the book, that so many people are seeking healing, but they're seeking these plant medicines without really knowing what they're getting themselves into. And these are not medicines that are meant to be used. I mean, they are used recreationally, but for the real healing to happen, there, there should be more to it. Can you speak a little bit to that and how you see the um, power of these medicines and how we should be sort of journeying with them or allowing them to help us on our journey? Mm, it's a great question because there's a fundamental challenge, I'll say, in the Western world that, that if we really want to partner with these plants and have them be as potent as is available, we need to treat them like sentient beings. They're conscious. This isn't an unconscious synthetic drug made in a lab that we take unconsciously and hope it works. The more we bring that reverence that you're speaking to, treat them as conscious beings, the more there is this potency to co-create together. And I know that's a, a lot for those of us, myself included, that was like scientifically minded. I mean, I have a very logical mind like anyone else. Even though I grew up in nature, I didn't have a relationship with nature until I started working with plant medicine, recognizing, oh yeah, these plants are conscious, not like us, it's different, but they, they have so much wisdom, they have personalities, you know, there's so much to learn from them in a relationship way. And that's the big thing that I think is a shift for a lot of us is to treat them as beings that we are learning from, communicating with, connecting with, and not just like unconsciously taking like a supplement or a drug. Can you talk about the difference between the plant consciousness and human consciousness? Oh, yeah. So human consciousness, we're really unique because we have egos. We have these parts of ourselves that feel separate. And it's a very real experience that I think I'm separate from you. I'm having a separate experience. So we're in duality consciousness as a result of that. So plants come from unity consciousness and they all have their own personalities. Like lavender has a personality that's different from sage, but they don't forget that everything is interconnected. They don't have egos. They don't have operating systems. So they don't suffer the way that we do. They don't experience the depths of darkness the way that we do, which is why they're so honored and happy to help us. Because what they've shared with me is, is we humans, we're doing the hard work of making what is unconscious conscious. We're expanding consciousness. They can't do that because they don't have the access, the experience of, of separateness. So they're, they're unique in their individual energies, but also never forgetting the interconnectedness of all things. So that's one way of how they're different. So they communicate to us through our heart space because this is the part that is, is in unity consciousness in us, right? So when we talk to them, we talk through the heart, not through you know, our logical mind. So that's like, I, I would say the fundamental difference. And when you, when you are speaking of this, this, has, you, this information has come to you in your communication with the plants. 
communication and experience. I've, I've worked so much with plant consciousness that I've gotten really curious of that question. What's different about you all? And that's what they showed me is, oh, when you're in unity consciousness, you don't suffer because you know everything's okay, which is, by the way, what we experience when we go into transitioning into death. It's like that remembrance of everything's always okay. Everything was meant to be. I'm connected. I'm safe. Like we forget that when we're here in a body by design, of course, but throw, so working with them so much in such intimate containers, I've realized like, ah, that that's the, the fundamental difference. Cause I can feel it, you know? So in the book, you say they've taught me that truth is the only way out of chaos. So I have to first show up real vulnerable and all in. So what does that look like when when someone is beginning a journey, because I know, again, there's so much, people are so excited about this new psychedelic reemergence. Um, and so many people are doing psychedelics. So many people are saying that they are um, integrators or um, that they can prescribe the medicine. Now, much of this medicine is still illegal in the United States. So that's something to be very aware of. Um, but, but can you speak a little bit to this notion? I guess we could perhaps call it spiritual bypassing that could potentially happen with the use of psychedelics. I mean, that's my concern is that, again, is this another way for people to say, oh, I'm looking at my stuff and I'm doing the work, but they're showing up, they're doing one or two trips or a ceremony, and then they're just going back to life as it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, as humans, I think we're looking for the quick fix. We want the magic pill, make it go away, my pain. And the plants in particular, they sort of teach us that the pain, the sadness, grief, fear, all of it is part of our human experience. We're supposed to feel those things. We're supposed to learn from and, and experience them. They're not problems to be fixed. So when we go to the plant medicines with that very, it's a very innocent request of, I just don't want to feel pain. Yeah, you can bypass all the pain, the emotion, the trauma that you're carrying, even with these strong psychedelics, there has to be a willingness to feel. They can't force it. They're not going to do it for us. So that's why ayahuasca in particular, I mean, she's never, ever recreational or fun times on drugs because that medicine in particular is all about feeling. Get into your body and feel the emotions that you have mentally shut down from. That's the only path to healing. Most of us know that logically, but we don't always know how to access these deep, painful parts inside of us. We don't even know that it's safe to feel that. That's one of the things the plants not only teach us, but you know, sometimes don't give us a choice. Mushrooms, ayahuasca, et cetera, sometimes they're like, you're going to feel this. You can't think your way out of this. And that's the gift of them. But we have to be willing to do that. We have to at least know that that's the secret sauce. They can't do it for us. And of course, it's not a one-time thing. You know, we're going to be feeling and processing our whole lives. The plants don't, don't diminish that. In fact, they amplify it. They make us aware that that's what we're supposed to do here. And they teach us how to do it in a way that feels safe and graceful rather than resisting you know, that natural flow. Is that where the, the people might have heard this? It's called DIED, D-I-E-D, drug-induced ego disillusion. Is that where that comes into play is that it allows you it allows your ego to basically go offline. So you are no longer in a place of judging what you're experiencing, but you're just experiencing it. Bingo. And that moment where the ego goes offline is when we become unity consciousness. We're already unity consciousness. We just have this overlay that prevents us from being the experience of it. And so when the ego goes offline, which, yeah, the plants are one of the most turbo ways to experience that. We can't guarantee it, but you know, it happens frequently. It's that opportunity to realize what we realize when we die is that we are conscious without a body. We are absolutely unequivocally connected to everything and it's all from love and everything's okay. So those moments of ego dissolution, they're not always easy because we're often fighting like hell before it happens. Like, no, no, no. But then when it does happen, then 
there's just that that undeniable recognition of that interconnectedness and safety. Mm-hmm. So that is one of the biggest gifts they have to offer. Can you describe a little bit what, from your experience, what that's like when you're sort of resisting that space? It's the most horrific, like suffering to resist it because it's our birthright. It's where we're all from, right? But here's what blows me away is no matter how much wisdom myself, any of us have around death, being safe, um, having our you know ego death be not a real death, but something that we actually want. Man, the psychology in us to fight that is so profoundly deep. I mean, it's primal. Not only that, but the primal energy within our bodies to survive our biology. And so, you know, those opportunities I've had to have ego deaths, the majority of them I fought like crazy, even though there's a part of me that quote knew better. If like, you know, this is safe, you know, everything's okay. I can't really convince the primal energy in me that is hundreds of thousands of years old to just put aside survival that, you know, that it's, it's okay to die. It's just really profound to get to witness that. So sometimes I fight, I've had one experience where I didn't because I think I was exhausted and it was a magical, beautiful, gentle ego death, but typically the lead up to it is all about resistance. Mm -hmm. God, it's so fascinating how, we're all seeking, and I think people really are seeking these medicines, obviously to heal, but also to get to that place of, of acceptance, of, of the letting go of this fear of death that we all have. I mean, I talk about it on the show all the time, and I say all the time, as comfortable as I am with the concept of death, um, I don't want to, I'm not ready to die. It's not that I don't want to die. When I'm ready, I'm kind of excited for it, but I'm not ready now nor do I want anybody in my sphere to die, right? Right. Despite everything I know. And yet here people are actively seeking out this experience of what it feels like to die so they can be less afraid of death so they can live better now. It's like this crazy like chaos that we've spiraled ourselves into and this it's 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 interesting to me that this seems like the way out one of right but you know the one thing i caution people when they approach these medicines is not to make it your intention to have an ego death because more often than not that intention comes from some aspect of self self abuse you know that pervasive idea in spirituality that the ego is a problem that it needs to be killed you know and i don't advocate wanting to harm any part of our consciousness, any part of any of ourselves. Um, you can invite the experience in of like, gosh, I'd love to experience unity consciousness if mm-hmm. it you know, is for the highest good. But I never encourage people to say, I want an ego death because that comes from pain. Mm-hmm. It comes from get this out, the idea that there's something wrong. And so the experience, even if it manifests, can feel traumatic. Whereas if we approach it from love, of like, well, you know, I'd love to experience it, not trying to force it, then it, if it does happen, it's likely not to be traumatic. And we can revel in the, you know, the grace of it. But um, it's just really, I think it's just important to always try to have our intentions come from, you know, a space of wanting to be kind to ourselves rather than to punish any aspect of our consciousness. Well, and I almost think of it as like, how can we just move it aside, right? It doesn't need yeah. to be, it doesn't need to die, but can we move it aside So it can get out of the way of the work that we need to do. Because I always think our ego is this part of us that prevents us from really, really feeling because there's so much shame and uh, there's, there's often so much shame around what it means to feel and be vulnerable. And if that can be moved to the side, then we can tap into those feelings and the medicines have a way of being able to do that. Yeah, I love that language. The metaphor I always use is I'm trying to pass the steering wheel from my ego to my soul. Mm. And ego can be a backseat driver. Go ahead, you know, have something to say, but to not allow the primary experience of consciousness to only be from my ego, to pass that steering wheel, which is is in alignment with your language of setting it aside. I love that. That's not abusive. Mm. You know, that's really loving just to say, hey, somebody else's turn to drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you talk a bit about integration? Because this is huge. And 
Um, You say in the book, what isn't as prominent is a focus on integration. It's beginning to become a priority for some, but we are in the infancy of spreading the word about how utterly crucial it is to take time to integrate the peak experiences from plant medicine, from trauma, from life itself. I think in our culture, we have a bit of an addiction to experiences. You know, the bigger, the better. That's what we trust. When in fact, It's what we do with those experiences that impacts our daily lives. So that's how I define integration. It's, it's, and it's certainly not um, uh, just about plant medicine experiences. It's about anything major that happens in our lives. Good, bad, difficult, graceful. Like we need to spend time making friends with that experience, making sense of it. Like seeing where it's asking us to change things in our lives, how we're showing up in the world, relationships, jobs, you know, self-care, all of it. Because if we don't integrate those things, even the most beautiful, incredible plant medicine experience becomes a distant memory. Of, oh, yeah, I remember that one time, you know, I worked with mushrooms and I felt one with all that is. If we don't bring that in, it's kind of like bringing it in on every cell of our body, embodiment, then it it doesn't get to have the potential for impact in a positive way in our lives. It just becomes something we did. So integration is so important because that's where we get to practice what was taught to us. Hi, everybody. I have a new offering that a few of you have taken advantage of so far, and it is a spiritual consultation. So, so many of you had reached out to me with like questions or wanting to know how to open up more, wanting to know, you know, what you should do in this area of your life or that area of your life that I thought I would just try to offer a new way to connect with me. So these are spiritual consultations. They can be 30 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half. And in that time, we talk about kind of what questions you have, whether it's about opening up more spiritually, whether it's about something in your life. And we really kind of come to an understanding and a conclusion about what the next steps you need to take to achieve that are. Again, this is new to me. I've done a few of them. They are phenomenal. I am so enjoying them. It is not a therapy session. Be clear. It is not a therapy session. It is not a medium reading. It is somewhere in between. So it is using, we, we incorporate meditation and intuition and um, manifestation and intention and all of this in like a very brief period of time, but it has been extremely powerful. And the people that I, I believe that have done it have walked away feeling like they really had something tangible that they could carry with them and um, help them move their life forward. So if this is something you're interested in, please reach out to me. I don't have a lot of um, spots for them. So I'm only doing maybe one or two a month, but um, really keeping a wait list for those who are interested. So you can find that on my website if you want to dramyrobbins.com and you can go on there and click on spiritual consultation and I will get you scheduled. It might be a month or two out, but I am I'm trying to get everybody who's interested in. So Go ahead and check that out. If you have any questions, just email me about it through the website as well. Do you find that there are people who abuse? I mean, I know that the, the, these drugs aren't, these medicines are not, they're not addictive. But are there people who become sort of psychologically addicted to, the, to them, to the process? What does that look Most like? Most definitely. And yeah. how, do, how would one know that or avoid that? Even medicines like ayahuasca that are really difficult to work with. I mean, she involves purging and deep emotional releases. Even she can be something people psychologically hide behind. Again, the experience junkie. If you notice that you are just after the next high, whatever it is, you know, plant medicine ceremonies, relationship falling in love, all this intensity, and there isn't the space in between that's kind of calm and full of observance and insights, then it's just this tendency to jump to the next experience. Mm -hmm. So yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of that. The ayahuasca has an expression. She talks to me a lot around this. She calls that doing your homework on the teacher's desk of like going into the ceremony to do the work rather than realizing that happens when in, in the regular part of our lives, in our daily spiritual 
actual practice. That's when the integration happens, not when you're on the next experience. So it, it's very actually common in the plant medicine space that people aren't taking the time to integrate. So the, the medicine is like reading the book and the integration is like the book club after. There you go. The discussion yes. of the experience. And the book club reference is really key because integration often involves either having a therapist, an integration coach, a community. Like, as we know, it's just helpful to give language to what's happening in the subconscious, what's coming to the surface. And, and so having a community or somebody that you trust that can help decipher the messages that's coming through, it's really helpful because it doesn't typically make logical sense until we give it language, until we start connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. So the book club is spot on. What you, you referenced this a little bit earlier about being a white woman Uh, administering what is a traditionally indigenous healing ritual in so many cultures. And how, how do you make sense of that? Again, this is another concern as we like to westernize and capitalize on, on real, really ritualistic experiences that many cultures have had for thousands and thousands of years. So how did you come to terms with that? and then move forward? And how do you suggest or what are your thoughts on, you know, is it getting westernized? And then I want to also talk about synthetic. Okay, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, perfect segue. Yeah, Yeah. it's definitely getting westernized because the Western world has this way of finding uh, ancient wisdom and claiming it as new wisdom, as, as its own. Um, as evidenced by, you know, all of these very Western sort of courses and, and um, classes that are teaching shamanic wisdom without acknowledging that it's shamanic. And so my request is that the Western world, as we beautifully highlight the efficacy and power of these medicines that we give credit where credit is due, there have been indigenous tribes that have been guarding these medicines and traditions for thousands of years. So let's bring them to the table and honor them, make sure they too are profiting, that they too are supported and named as people who have helped to co-create this. So the way that I do that personally is, you know, a part of every single penny that I make goes to two things. One, putting the plants back in the ground, because if we're not committed to sustainability, they're not gonna be here for the next generations. And two, supporting the indigenous tribes that don't necessarily have the resources or the marketing skills or whatever to be in front of the Western world. Because if they didn't protect these traditions and medicines, we wouldn't have them now either. So just to have the Western world and the shamanic world together at the same table, sharing perspectives, like seeing each other as peers and as partners in this expansion, rather than, you know, the Western world just saying, look what I found, I'm going to make money off of it and not honoring where it came from. And what does it mean to be a shaman? Uh, Lots of people are saying they're shamans right now. That's a loaded question because most of us in the Western world, we don't know what it means. Um, You know, even the definition of it, it's a Siberian word. It loosely is translated as one who sees in the dark. But, you know, ultimately, a shaman is an individual who travels through dimensions, but works with the energies of the earth. Um, I don't use it typically as a description of who I am because I am white, because most of the Western world doesn't understand it. That's why I call myself an ayahuasquera and a wachumera. Those are the two medicines I work with. So I'm just a woman who works with ayahuasca, a woman who works with wachuma. Shaman is a loaded word. And you know, even though I know my soul's DNA is very different than how my body looks, I still want to honor that the presentation I have on the outside does not look indigenous. And so I use that word to honor the people that that walk in that culture. Um, other people use it for me. And it's a it's a it's it's an honor to be called that, but it's loaded. Um, there's a lot of people self-proclaiming they're shamans. They don't even know what it means. You know, so I think we should be careful with that kind of labeling. Well, and I loved the way you spoke about that in the book, because I felt like it really resonated with me, obviously, in the work that I do thinking about past lives and how, I mean, you were clearly so called to this work and clearly so called to the work of ayahuasca that it seemed like this was in your DNA in some way, even though that isn't your presentation. And I was thinking about 
how our past lives, if we feel particularly pulled or called to something in this way, even though it, we don't necessarily look the part of a traditional shaman, if you're from a past life perspective, have these indigenous, have had these indigenous experiences before, you walked into this and it felt like home to you, then should we say, absolutely, you should not do this because you're a white woman. Because I've, I've had the experience of thinking, how are all these people, these white people calling themselves shamans um, without really knowing the culture or coming from the culture? And that shifted for me when I thought about it in the way that you sort of framed it in the book. So I appreciated that. Oh, thank you for that. You know, it, it, it is tricky because on the one hand, we get to honor our soul's calling and who we know we are on a deeper level. On the other hand, we're having this experience of humanness that has all kinds of projections and we got to honor that too. It's part of the truth. So what I did, the one thing that made me realize I could do this, even as a, you know, a woman who was born white in this lifetime, is I had an indigenous teacher say, I see you. I, I accept, I'll train you. I'll teach you. I learned the indigenous ways from someone who learned the indigenous ways from his uh, uncle starting at age 12. So because I was recognized by the tribe that I revered so much as someone who could carry this medicine, it sort of circumvented my self-doubt. I, you know, I felt the blessing from them and I was like, okay, well, if they think I can do it, then, then, uh, you know, I'll trust that. That was huge to have that validation. And how much time did you spend learning about this? Well, I apprenticed for a total of 10 years, you know, just shy of that. A um, couple different teachers, one for almost eight years. So uh, I don't know, I guess a couple thousand ceremonies of Aya before I poured a single cup to anyone else. You lose count after a while. Uh, but I, so the apprenticeship, as I accepted it, is a minimum seven years commitment. Mm -hmm. And so when I said yes to it, it was like seven years. And you don't pour a single cup of medicine for anyone until that's, you know, until at least that is completed. It obviously took me longer because it's a big deal. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, that's why I object to the Westerners, you know, having a few ceremonies in a yoga studio in Brooklyn and then going, I can do this. That's like watching Grey's Anatomy and saying, I can do surgery. I've seen it. I know I can do it. You know, it's, it's so much to learn that we should learn it. In the tradition, we should follow that. Even if we're going to do it in a different way, just like doctors may do things differently, you go and learn the traditions, the basics about anatomy, about like psychology, all of that before you self-proclaim that you can do this because it's, it's a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you do give a list of questions for people to ask if they are considering doing some sort of plant medicine journey that I think were wonderful because it really informs people what they should be looking for rather than just to your point, like hearing that there's a retreat being offered at a yoga studio or whatever it might be. Um, so can you talk a bit about the synthetic versus natural? Because I know in, in a lot of this clinical studies they're doing, they're using synthetics because they have to in order to control, they claim, for a lot of things, a lot of different factors. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is the most concerning element of the westernization of these medicines to me personally. Um, not to say that synthetics don't have consciousness. Everything does, right? But a synthetic consciousness doesn't have the spirit of the plant that it came from intact. So I'll use psilocybin as the example, because synthetic psilocybin is what's typically used in and, you know, the different studies that are happening. Synthetic psilocybin is on an, uh, like an alchemical or alkaloidal structure. It's the same, but there's no spiritual element of the spirit of the mushrooms in there. So to me, it's like flying an airplane without a pilot. You know, it still has the same function, but there isn't that, that tour guide energy, that consciousness that's there holding you, guiding you, helping like insights come in. And it's just another example of how the Western world is disconnected from nature. Now, the reason why the synthetic route is safer to the Western world is because it follows the scientific method more, you know, more consistently. 
meaning that it can be predictable. Plants aren't predictable. Nature isn't predictable. Neither are we, by the way. Neither is consciousness. But we don't feel safe in the Western world unless we can just repeat something again and again and again. And because psilocybin mushrooms are not repeatable or ayahuasca isn't repeatable, then we're synthesizing things to feel like we've got more control. Control is not what it's about. So we're missing the point by focusing fully on, on synthetics. I think, because it's not connected in the organic and natural way. Well, and I wonder too, I'd be very curious to see a study of synthetic psilocybin um, journeyers versus natural psilocybin journeyers and how their journeys differ or if they do. Because I think to your point, they must. If, if the intention behind a synthetic is to be able to control, what does that mean when that's what you're taking in? What does that look like in your journey? I would love to see that study. And to even it add to the complexity done, of that, but, but, uh, well, you never know, but right. likely not anytime soon. But even the consciousness of the person who extracted the synthetic and made it in a lab matters. Could we study that? Like, Because we've seen the studies of what happens with water when it's infused yes. with love, anger, et cetera. The same is true for these medicines. And we're doing this in this clinical setting and everything is really sterile. There's no heart. There's no soul in how we're creating this. Nature has that already intact. So you know that study would show differences, but you're right. It's it's not happening anytime soon. No, no. In this class I'm taking, um, which sort of runs antithetical to everything we're talking about here, one of the things that they did talk about was how difficult it is to get even funding for these even long-term funding to see the, the impacts of it. It's like, you know, you get six months and then you can't follow people for longer than that because the money just isn't there, which, but, but the proof is certainly in the pudding in terms of all of these indigenous healer, healing experiences that people have. So can you give us like a little bit of the personality of some of the, the, the big ones that people are aware of right now? I think ayahuasca is one psilocybin's one, MDMA is a synthetic, so that really isn't one, uh, 5-MeO-DMT, which is toad venom. Um, can you give us some of the personalities of those? You refer to ayahuasca as she. Yes. Many people have called her grandmother ayahuasca or mother ayahuasca. Can you speak a little bit to these different yeah, I love talking about them in this way. So ayahuasca, yeah, she's um, the mom. She's the best mom I've ever encountered, but she's the kind of mom that gives it to you straight, you know, that knows when you need to be held and, and nurtured and knows when you need to be smacked upside the head because you're believing your own lies. You know, she's, she's so maternal. It's always from love, but man, she can, she can be so intense and direct and not letting us love to ourselves. Thank goodness. Um, so she's, and her energy actually is very snake-like. So the indigenous traditions believe that the spirit of ayahuasca also lives in the snake, very kundalini-like. She moves in that upward way. And so she's really powerful in, in releasing uh, blockages and toxicities and things that are stored in the body. So, and she's pure fire. She's super, super fiery. Um, psilocybin. So the mushrooms, they're the only um, entheogen that we speak to in the plural. They're a collective. And you can see that by how they grow. You know, their root system underneath the earth is so interconnected and they communicate to the trees and the other plants telling them when there's danger, when something's happening. So they are master communicators. And even the, the root structure looks like the neural passageways in our brain, right? There's like mm -hmm. such similarities. So, but their personality is they're super mischievous. They're, they're like, you know, the Loki God, the God of mischief is, is the, the way they communicate doesn't often make sense in a linear logical way. Um, it's, it's very dreamlike. It's very subconscious communication. Uh, they're always having a blast, even when we're going through it in an intense healing process. They have this like he 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 kind of energy, which is um, either insulting or inspiring, depending on how you're feeling at the time. Um, but they're the the playful, like tribal energy of the group. Um, and then there's Wachuma, which I just want to give a shout out to because yeah, yeah, he's yeah. starting to get a lot of attention. Uh, it's a cactus, also known as San Pedro. We call him grandfather because he's heart medicine. 
But you know that feeling of sitting on the porch with your grandfather in a rocking chair talking about the secrets of the universe, you know? It goes all day and grandfather is sort of slow in how he tells his stories. That's the energy of Wachuba. Very divine masculine, very kind, um, very heart opening, but it's a slow ride with him, uh, whereas ayahuasca is like super kind of turbo. So his his kind of grandfather energy is is really very special and unique in the entheogen realms. And so those are that, like the three top ones. And is that something that you drink as well? Yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, it doesn't taste good, but yes, that's uh, also a tea, just like ayahuasca. Okay. And how about five um, meo DMT? So Bufo, Bufo, yeah, Bufo and Vilka. Yeah, Vilka is the plant version that has at least enough concentration of 5-MeO that we can experience it. Um, That, there's no personality there because that is complete dissolution. The only thing I can compare that to is God consciousness, is the all feeling. Is because if you have a strong enough dose of either of those substances, you are no longer you. You know, there's no, there's no cat anymore having this like object, like um, objective experience. It becomes the unity consciousness we were speaking to. So there's no decipherable personality other than the all and the nothing at the same time. You know, that's the best way I can describe them. Mm-hmm. And what about, I'm going to say this wrong. It'd be, uh, I, I would, I would. Iboga. Iboga. Okay. Ah, Iboga. So Iboga is West African medicine and he's extremely ancient and masculine. Uh, For those of us interested in astrology, he is Saturn energy, that energy of like hammer of truth. Um, Iboga is most appropriate for people dealing with addiction because it actually has medicine that can reset uh, opiate addiction chemistry. Um, But in addition to that, he gives this like life review experience when you work with him that again, he doesn't really care if you don't like the information he has to share. It's very direct very truthful, very masculine, and very healing. So he's a tough one, but um, very profound. Are there people that this is just not for? Absolutely. And all of the medicines are different for each of us too. You know, some of us, it's just, they're just like people, plants in that some of us, you know, really resonate with some and not so much with others. And there's a mystery in that that isn't necessarily logical. Plants are the same way. And then there are some people that this kind of intense altered experience is just never going to be safe or healing for them. No. So it's just one way to heal. Um, but I'm, I'm surprised in the 20 years I've been doing this, how many people are called, how, how broad the spectrum is now of the people that are ready to take on such a, you know, it's a very intense experience experience to work with these uh one last question before if you're good for a speed round um before we get to that microdosing versus divine dosing or macro dosing i feel like i'm trying to get every question that i usually have in because i love that you're from your it feels to me like you it's almost like you started in the in the mailroom and now you're like the ceo um that you have gotten it at every single level like you've gone along the journey and I so appreciate that in your speaking on this and I feel like so many I feel like right now the energy around psychedelics feels I'm not normally I don't normally talk about this which is interesting feels very masculine and it's like it's in reading your book and talking with you today, I'm, I'm like thinking, oh, when's her next journey I'm signing up for? Because it feels like one would feel so like held and understood by you and how you probably do this work. So I just wanted to say that. And then we'll get back to microdosing and divine dosing. Thank you for that so much. Um, Microdosing, divine dosing, and all, everything in between, by the way, there's hippie dosing, which is like not quite ceremonial, but not microdosing. Regardless of, of what we choose, it's important for us to remember it's always a relationship that we're building with the spirit. So for people that are either really sensitive and scared of an altered experience, but are really called to see what can happen in the partnership with these medicines, microdosing is amazing. You know, in addition to people that are just deepening the relationship, maybe that they've had already in a divine dose, like, you know, we can, we can do both, you know, but 
Um, divine doses typically are defined as the biggest doses that we recommend with an entheogen to have like an ego death experience. But a ceremonial dose is a dose that's still strong and altering, but isn't necessarily going, you know, the, the big, big guns. I highly encourage people to do everything in between, whatever they're called. Like when people come to an IS ceremony with me, it's not about drinking a full cup. It's about doing what feels safe. And for some of us, what feels safe is a little splash to start with. You can always drink more and it may be building trust. So, you know, some of us are kind of scared and sensitive with this intensity. That doesn't mean you don't, you should say no. It means that you can cultivate a process of easing into the experience that feels safe. And then if you want to continue the relationship later, microdosing is absolutely beautiful. As long as it's treated with that reverence, not like an unconscious supplement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One last question that I wanted to ask. What are the plants saying about what we're doing to this planet? The plants, it's an interesting question because on the one hand, they tell me that what's happening is exactly what's supposed to happen, that we should not be approaching the reality of the situation through the lens of guilt and shame. Because when we shame ourselves, we actually perpetuate that shadow all the more. You know, if I'm ashamed of something, I'm hiding it, I'm more likely to continue doing it. So on the one hand, they're like, you guys, it's okay. You came here to be destructive and to realize the karma of that. But there's an urgency now that wasn't there, you know, 18 years ago when I started of, hey, like you need to start actually doing your healing and connecting with nature outside or she's going to kick you off. They're not worried about them. They're worried about us. So, you know, you're, you're at a tipping point where nature may decide you guys are just too problematic. It's too painful to have you here. And in comes an event that wipes us out. So, you know, they're like, it's okay. And wake up, come from love. Let's, let's actually move forward or we won't have earth to call home anymore. Well, and I, I, I read that when I read that in the book. I loved that because I think that so, I mean, look at what's happening now with our world, right? And we keep saying, I mean, you and I, the way we got started was, I, we talked about the heat wave and if it's hit you yet and it hasn't hit me yet. And, um, but, you know, climate change isn't a thing and that's a joke. Um, but that, you know, Mother Earth will, she will survive. We won't, but she will, because there will be, there are hurricanes and tornadoes and all of these global events that are literally wiping people off the planet, a pandemic, right? And we will, she will survive all of that if she needs to. We won't. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not save the earth, it's save humanity. Mm -hmm. That's what it's about. And what's really magical about that? is that in the process of recognizing what we need to do to save the earth, quote unquote, we're actually healing ourselves. What is good for her is good for us because the toxic, violent, divisive, angry world that we live in that creates that disconnect from nature, that's why we're all hurting and suffering and physically ill. So the symbiotic relationship that we have with nature is mind blowing. And so as we wake up to the fact that we've hurt her and we wanna do better, we're helping ourselves too. It's just all like connected in that way. So and look at what it's exciting that we're waking up. exciting in that way. And look at what we're all seeking to heal, right? Like everybody's now turning back to this, that, that plants can be our medicine. Yeah, we kind of went astray there for a while and thinking that the medicine was made in a, in a lab which some of it is, don't get me wrong, I'm not throwing out all of the amazing Western advances. It's just like coming home to nature. What is in our backyard is far more healing than what is produced in a lab. It just is. And most of what's produced in a lab is based on what's in nature anyway. So, you know, we're just coming full circle. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. Kat, can we do a quick speed round? Sure, let's do it. it. Okay. I'm ready. Spirituality means... Connectivity. What is something most people don't know about you? Oh, that I have a very dark, angry ego. What is one thing you are really looking forward to right now? Leaving the United States, living elsewhere. Hmm, Where are you going? Costa Rica, I think. Nice. Not official, but that's what I hope. 
What is one thing you are deeply grateful for right now? Ayahuasca. <laughs> Finding her. What book is on your nightstand? I am reading The Immortality Key. Ooh, what's that one? Oh, perfect for a a lover of death and the afterlife. I'm just getting started, but it's about indigenous teachings of immortality and of what the the ancients have known about the timelessness of our souls for, well, since we became, you know, humans. So I think it should be on your nightstand too. Yeah, I think it's going to be. (laughs) What is your favorite spiritual or healing practice? Healing what? What was Practice. Practice. Well, plant medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these questions seem not so like they, I feel like I could answer them for you at this point, And I barely know you. What is the most transformative experience in your life? You know, I want to say ayahuasca, but um, I will also just say shadow work in general. All the opportunities that I have to go where it's uncomfortable. That's what's most transformative. Okay. And that's how you define shadow work. Cause I feel like, again, right now, lots of people are dropping this. I'm doing the shadow work. I'm doing the shadow work. I feel like as a therapist, I'm always both personally and also with my patients, the work we do is the shadow work, right? It's the, the stuff that you don't, you don't want other people to see. Yeah. If you don't love about yourself. Or the corners you've never encountered before. Right, you haven't dusted. You've not yeah. like peeked under the rug over there. Exactly. That's that, how I define it how too. You define it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because it comes yeah. out of Jungian concepts, but right now it just again it feels like people kind of latch on to these like trendy words to say or things to say, and it's you know now it's all about shadow work. And again, I think we have to go back to what does that really mean. Yeah. And you know, one quick thing with that, with shadow work, it's also good news that we find it's our potentiality and our talents and our superpowers. Like the shadow isn't just hiding the things that are shameful and painful. It's like parts of our authentic selves that we want to find. That's why I love it so much. And I answered shadow work as the most transformative because it's Mm self-discovery. Nothing better. Mm -hmm. Well, Kat, this was awesome. If people want to hear more about you, I'll have the link in the show notes, but can you just let them know all the different places they can find you and and what work you're doing in terms of the plant medicine? Absolutely. So I am doing retreats in Costa Rica and Peru primarily right now. Um, You can find out all about the retreats and the courses. I teach a course called Plant Medicine Mystery School, and that's all at the plantmedicinepeople.com website. On social media, you'll find me as the afterlife coach. Well, thank you so much, Kat. Your time today was just phenomenal. I loved chatting with you about this. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Epic conversation. (laughs) Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.